Hello and welcome to Football Digest Extra Time. We are here to talk about all the Premier League action this weekend. We're focused on some of the main stories, the title race in particular. You can hear my dogs already getting involved in this podcast. <laughs> but we'll start straight away, Ben, with um, talking about the Arsenal game this weekend. They lost against Everton. What were your views on that? And are Arsenal doing the infamous bottling, <laughs> as people have said in their past? Yeah, I, I thought, first of all, I just thought it was uh, just some so remarkably improved performance from Everton. I thought they were just completely at it. Um, and I just thought they they sort of found a way to get at Arsenal, not only by limiting what they were doing going forward, but I thought they created a lot of chances as well. And I think there was a good blueprint there for the teams that are going to play them now. Um, it was a huge wake-up call for Arsenal, I think. Um, it would, it's been too calm I would say like in the in the month since the the Premier League's resumed Arsenal have seemed to just sort of just be rattling off these games and you were getting to the stage where you were thinking if they can rattle off another five like what's the gap looking like and suddenly I think it just it should just refocus everyone because they were not good they were it, it wasn't a fluky win let's just say that I thought Everton were the better side throughout the game and, and fully deserved what was a narrow victory and what was a massive victory for them. Do you think it looked like Arsenal of towards the end of last season, you know, we saw them lose some crucial games. I think they lost at Newcastle away. They lost against Tottenham in the derby. To me, it looked like that kind of performance. They, they, they weren't clicking. They looked, they weren't taking risks with the passing. It, it felt very almost safe um, and almost like they were intimidated by the occasion, I know they've got a bad record down at Goodison Park, but you'd think you were playing second bottom in the league. They, they should have went there with a lot of confidence. And to me, that looked like they played within themselves. I think that's. I think you can understand fears from Arsenal fans that this could be sort of a beginning of a bad run of form heading into the second half of the season. Yeah, no, I think they definitely look like they lacked ideas, which we haven't seen for a while. And um, and and look, I just think. That particular, you see it sometimes with these early kickoffs on Saturdays as well. There's there's quite a lot of times when the bigger side are just putting a sleepier performance, um, and you know there was there was a couple of half chances at nil nil. If they taken those, it probably would have been a different sort of a different afternoon. But Everton just sort of grew in confidence. I think they would have had more fears about what Arsenal could do to them, and I think they sort of after about half an hour, I think they felt right, we're, we're in this game and it's not just like a 10-minute burst at the start with the crowd on our on our side. I thought um, I thought Anana for Everton was absolutely unbelievable. Ran it from midfield, which again, we haven't seen too often. Arsenal have dominated games in midfield and, um, you know, pretty much every week and, and obviously didn't have that same sort of um, that same sort of dominance um, at Goodison Park. I think what the positive is for Arsenal is you lose that game then you've got Brentford at home next week which is a tough game it's a tough game then you've got that City game which is essentially it's getting to the stage where you feel like that is a if Arsenal can avoid defeat it will go a long long way and then they've got some winnable games they've got Villa, Leicester, Bournemouth Fulham, Palace, Leeds there's a good stretch there where you would you'd fancy them most weeks and then if they can get through that bit then you know we're into we're into March, April because it's still early. Like the, the gap, the break for the the World Cup is sort of 
moved everyone's thoughts, whereas this isn't quite what February the 6th usually is in a title race. It's still a little bit earlier than that. So it feels like a defeat that might have come at a good time for them, especially with what happened later in the weekend because it hasn't really caused them too much damage. And, you know, with that City gang so close, they're going to have to refocus. And I think that sort of those fixtures will help them just get straight back on the horse. Do you think also are a little bit unfortunate playing Everton when they did? Because you'd think if it was two weeks ago when this game had happened and Everton still had Frank Lampard there and Everton had lost home games against Southampton and Wolves and Brighton, you know, they, they were really struggling. It feels like Sean Dyche coming in, this was a game Sean Dyche would have reveled when he was Burnley manager, coming up against a, a technical side and trying to physically out-muscle them and maybe doing a bit of discredit to Sean Dyche's football. But we all know that he has very committed physical football. Do you think this game just came at a really bad time for Arsenal? I mean, I saw another statistic that Everton had won um, the first home game under a new manager the last 14 times that it happened. You know, there was a lot of things going against Arsenal. But do you think Sean Dyche's appointment really affected how this game would have been played compared to if Frank Lampard was in charge two weeks ago? Yeah, well, you never want that first game of a new manager. You know, particularly, you know, that Everton crowd had... It can get quite poisonous there. You know, there's there's sort of deep re- deep rooted issues with the ownership, and and it can turn pretty quickly. But you know, there was a new manager, so it felt a different type of atmosphere. That there was sort of like a new start, a start of a new era, start of, almost like a start of a new season. So Everton fans were able to get behind them. You know, they they won a corner after like two or three minutes, and there was just a huge roar. Whereas if that was two weeks ago, there'd probably be a couple of claps and you know, and they'd just be getting on. So it just felt like a, a massive game for them. I can't, they're, they're still not a good side. So Arsenal still should have gone there and won the game. So you can't look too much into it. But yeah, it was certainly made more difficult than it probably would have been if Frank Lampard was still in the dugout. But for what Arsenal are aspiring to do, they shouldn't be looking at that as going, oh, that was bad luck that we got them at that time of the season because you know, they're still a significantly better side than Everton. They just didn't didn't show up, didn't perform at all. Thought it was really just the tempo. I thought Arsenal played quite slowly. I just thought they were just outmatched. And and we haven't really seen that, you know, pretty much in any game this season. I think it's that's that was their second defeat, wasn't it? And yes. and it's the first time I can remember that they've looked like decidedly second best. Back to back as well because they lost against Man City last weekend, so they've lost two in a row, I think, because uh, they lost yeah. the cup. So yeah, little bit, little bit concerned there for Arsenal. And I think as well that does you have a bit of a reputation of having a soft underbelly, so that it's it's a little bit of a alarm bells going. I think at the Emirates, but we'll, we'll switch now and talk about the other side of the title race. Man City went to Tottenham yesterday, and I think most people felt that City would probably um, get something from that game, but like Arsenal. City have got a terrible record at the Tottenham's Hotspur Stadium in the same way also got a bad one at Goodison Park and City fell to a 1-0 defeat you look at you know Yao Cancelo for me losing him I know he's not been playing that much recently but that that was quite a significant blow I felt to the way that Manchester City played and then you see them play yesterday and they were flat I felt you know it didn't look like a, a fluid Pep Guardiola performance it looked like the well, kind of what we saw last season when City went there on the opening day, just flat and unable to really break down a, a pretty uh, defensively strong Tottenham side. 
Do you think City fans should be concerned after that game? They had a chance to close in the, the gap on the title race and failed to do it. And they've looked nowhere near the other team that were last season. They just seem to look, I don't know what the word would be, but just much flatter, much less um, attack and rhythm to the player. But what do you make of yesterday's game and, and City kind of overall at the minute? Yeah, I think if I was a City fan, I'd be more concerned than if I was an Arsenal fan. because. Um, that Arsenal performance felt more like a one-off. Whereas I think we've seen signs of this happening at City. I don't, I don't think they've really hit top gear at any point, sort of over a over a longer period of time. I don't think they've properly worked out how to play with a player like Haaland. Um, you know, there's no touches in the opposition box and essentially no threat. They were basically playing with 10 players because Haaland isn't the type that's going to you know, drop in and come and get the ball for himself. And he wasn't being used correctly. And you correctly point out Cancelo. And he's the type of player that can create something out of nothing, which is what they needed yesterday. And um, Tottenham defended brilliantly. And um, thought I sat in really well. And I thought, you know, it was, it was probably, you know, we spoke about the, a bad time to play. And Everton, it was probably a bad time to play Tottenham. I imagine the players were really inspired to get something for Conte. Um, you know, with him having to go into the hospital in midweek, and that was probably a, had a really galvanising impact on the squad. City also had the torturous four and a half hour journey into London, which Guardiola pointed out as a as a reason for their defeat. And um, I thought they would. I thought they were so flat. I think that's the perfect word for it. And it was. It was another sort of team selection that we've seen Pep do occasionally where you just like scratch your head and wonder if he's just tried to overthink it, which he, you know, he sarcastically hit back at earlier this season about the fact that he overthinks team selections. I, I thought they were just, I thought they looked really poor. I thought they looked really poor. And I, I just think there's been more signs of those City performances than we've seen of the same of Arsenal, which is why, like, I just, when, when Everton beat Arsenal, I, I thought it was going to be a massive weekend in the title race. Because if City went to Spurs and won, gap was down to two points. They've still got to play each other twice. Albeit Arsenal have got that game in hand. But it would have suddenly felt like, you know, there's one result in there. City, if they played before them or, you know, even with a couple of games in hand, they can nip above them. It, it just changes the mindset of everything. I think that City defeat's a huge one. Because now Arsenal can just avoid defeat against City, I think. And I think that's the way they've got to look at it. Win If they can win one of them, draw one of them, you know, they'll, that will go a really long way to winning the title. And I'm just not convinced that this City side are anything like what we've seen in previous years. I think they're a lot more beatable. Um, and yeah, well, it was a, that was a really concerning performance. Thought Tottenham, were, again, I thought Tottenham were brilliant in the way that they defended and, and the way that they took on the challenge. But, yeah, um, something not quite right at City, I don't think. I mean, you mentioned there the, the Pep talking about the travel of four and a half hours. It's like playing a game in Northern Europe, I think he said. That, to me, was alarm bells because, you know, Pep's been here now for six or seven years. He's been in the Premier League a while. And as far as I can tell, this is the first time he's ever brought that up. And... Also, that's the reality of playing away football matches. I just don't understand the sort of relevancy of bringing that up. And to me, you just accept that you are 
poor on the day. You didn't play very well. You were done on a, a high press from Tottenham in, in because you were trying to play off from the back. It happens. You know, I just felt really sort of sore loser mentality from Pep. And normally, I don't necessarily associate him with that. Jurgen Klopp's a bit more of a, a sore loser than Pep. Normally, Pep would take it quite graciously. But I, I found them comments almost alarming in a way that he would blame travel that he's had to do, you know, probably 50 times since he's been a manager in the Premier League. I mean, what were your views on those comments? Do you think that Pep is looking for any excuse right now to defend how City are playing? I, I mean, those comments are what a lot of people have spoke about in the hours since that defeat rather than what he got wrong tactically and what, what City got wrong. So, you know, elite managers, he'd never want to be compared to him, but he spent a lot of time competing up against Mourinho, who was an absolute expert at deflecting stuff away from away from the team. It's it's elite managers just don't like losing. You know, we've seen a couple of weeks ago when they beat Tottenham at the Etihad and Guardiola just went off at the players and the fans and and everyone that was listening, um, saying they'd lost their fire, lost their intensity. So what I don't think he's particularly happy with with what the side are doing anyway. And I would be surprised if he was going back into the tra- into the change rooms and saying, we've lost this game because it took us four and a half hours to get here. I think that was just a way of, you know, reading off the excuses to the press. So he doesn't have to, maybe didn't feel like he needed to publicly dismantle his players this week, whereas he needed to a couple of weeks ago. So he sort of, you know, it's just deflection tactics, isn't it? But uh, it's more alarming just how poor they were rather than his comments and um, because it's it, it's sort of like par for the course with, with some of these managers will come on to, to Klopp's comments as well this weekend which were more alarming to me than than Guardiola's but yeah it's it's what everyone's talking about now that four and a half hour journey rather than the fact that that City was so poor and the decision to let Cancelo leave, whatever happened behind the scenes, just could be one that that really hurts them in the next few months. Yeah, last point on City. Um, you did mention Erlen Haaland's uh, lack of touches in the box. And I think we've seen a lot with Man City this season, particularly away from home, an inability to get him involved in the game, a struggle to play the passes to him, even though they've got such creativity. It often feels like Carlin's making these runs in behind and Man City are like, nah, I'd rather pass it sideways. It, it's very confusing to watch a player who you know is so deadly and City seem to be so reluctant to try and get him through on goal. Is Do you think City are so ingrained playing with that false nine from years before that while Haaland is clearly an excellent player, he's maybe an excellent player in a team not built quite for him. It, just, it doesn't seem like he only scored a mad amount of goals, so it seems crazy to say it's it's not been the correct signing. But I feel like Man City are not building themselves and not giving themselves the best chance of success with Haaland by being so tepid in the way that they play with him in the team and so reluctant to try and get him in on goal. Because if he was my striker, my whole game plan would be, can we get Haaland in on goal on almost every pass that you make? That should be the thing. He's so powerful. He's so quick. He's such a good finisher. But City seem to be using him as, well, hopefully he can get on the end of a 20-pass move where he taps into the net across the goal. And, and that, to me, doesn't seem a good fit. 
Yeah, I thought I thought Paragraph, among many, many things he said yesterday, I thought he made a great point about the fact that City aren't scoring any extra goals with Haaland in the team, despite the fact that, you know, he's had this unbelievable start to his to his Premier League career. Man City are only scoring the same amount of goals. He's not adding you know, it's not like they scored 100 goals last year and Haaland's going to boost them to 120 or, you know, something like that. He's he's sort of just filling the role of, you know, where those goals may have come from, three different players that just come in from one. And it's sort of stunting other players. So when when Haaland has a... He went even bad. He just wasn't... He wasn't a factor in the game. So you can't say he was good or bad. He just... It's just something that you have to live with, the fact that when... The difference between Kane and Haaland, for example, is when the game is passing Haaland by, it will just pass him by, whereas Kane's happier to come deep, get the ball, he'll press, he'll hurry, he wants, you know, he wants everything, he, he'll scream for passes, he'll basically take it upon himself to have an impact on the game, whereas Haaland has never been like that and will never be like that. So you wonder if City are ever going to play the type of football that will get the best out of Haaland whilst also getting the best out of the other talented players because I think that's the most important thing. Because it's okay saying every time that, you know, De Bruyne gets the ball, his first thought should just be, let's get this over the top for Haaland to chase onto it, which, you know, is a conceivable way because he's that good. But you've also then got hundreds of millions of pounds of talent that are being bypassed all the time. So it felt like, it almost felt like Man City signed him because they could um, rather than he would necessarily be exactly what they were looking for, if that makes sense. Like, I can imagine him in, if he played at front for Man United, for example, you could see that there would be, they're more built for a striker like that, I think, than than Man City ever were. You know, Aguero wasn't necessarily that type of player. He'd come deep, he'd, he'd create, he'd, you know, constantly link up with, with other teammates. And, you know, he dropped out, then they basically played all of last season without a recognised striker. Played a bit of Jesus in there when he was when he was fifth. But again, he's not sort of that archetypal number nine that will just sit on the shoulder of the last man and, and score any chances he gets. So Harlan was available for the money that they got him, which was just a, you know, in today's market, what they paid for him was was peanuts. So they had to do that deal. But I don't know whether they were fully prepared for what he is and what it would impact the entire team. So I think there's work to do. You obviously don't, this isn't me saying that Man City should sell Haaland or anything ridiculous like that because he's still one of the best centre forwards in the world. It's just that Man City have to learn how to get the best out of him whilst also getting the best out of everyone else. Do you think, and this this might sound weird as it comes out of our but do you think the problem is that Erlen Haaland is not a very good footballer. And what I mean by that is it's clearly he's an excellent striker and clearly an excellent finisher, but he is not like the other Manchester City players. Every player who plays for Man City is technically excellent. They're brilliant passers. They're, they're very skillful. They're not words used with Erlen Haaland. You know, look at Gabriel Jesus and Sergio Aguero, who you mentioned before. As strikers, they were, I would say clever that that's kind of how they play they're clever footballers they find little pockets of space to try and link up the play Haaland's never going to do that and to me he is not a player that is likely to flourish under Pep Guardiola and I think you look at the players that Pep's had over the years maybe Lewandowski at Bayern Munich similar to Haaland but I still think he is 
a bit more of a target man, a bit more linking up the play, whereas Haaland is, is pure goals. And I just wonder if he isn't a player that's ever going to fully work in a Pep Guardiola system just because he doesn't have the other qualities that he expects to have from his players. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to have this conversation after a weekend where he's not scored. I always think you're better off having this conversation after he scored, you know, two goals because, you know, the there isn't actually a major difference between what Haaland did yesterday and what he did again, you know, against Wolves a couple of weeks ago. He was, you barely heard his name other than the two times he scored. Um, but there was no discernible difference between what he did against one of the poorest teams in Wolves and, and Tottenham. It's just that City happened to find him, you know, one of them were crossing the box and then he capitalised on the mistake for a second. And then obviously he scored a third as well. But it's like, there's just, he's very like a streaky player. He just will always be that because he's never going to look that pretty, I don't think, in terms of what he does. It, you're right, he's not, a, he's not a Guardiola player. But there's also not that many players who you can say, you know, I mentioned it with Cancelo in the fact that he can turn again and and Haaland in a different way can do that as well because he had no touches in the opposition box yesterday. If he had one, he might have scored. Like that that's that's just the nature of the beast with him. Like and and if he'd have scored, then we're probably not having this conversation, are we? I don't think if he had No. And and it doesn't actually change anything really, because you know, it, so all we're saying is Grealish put in put in one extra cross that found Haaland, he heads it in. So he has one touch in that position box that happens to be a goal. And there's probably not this big 20-minute conversation on Sky after about whether it's the right player and whether City are getting the best out of it. So I almost like want to have this conversation after he has scored goals because I think that's when it's probably more prevalent because we're a bit more, you know, it's a bit reactionary, isn't it, on a Monday morning after City have got beaten as well. But it doesn't actually change that much. And... I think the issues are there whether he scores or not. So there's going to have to be a decision about whether Pep can almost swallow his pride a little bit and play to Haaland's strengths or whether Haaland will adapt. Can he adapt? You know, there's, there's question marks over that as well. But look, he's still a, he's still a striker that, that will just score goals and they're not that easy to find. So yesterday was poor. Haaland... You know, as I say, Harlem didn't have an impact, but he's difficult to write off because, as I say, one touch of the opposition box changes the narrative completely, so. Yeah, I think the time maybe is at the end of the season, see how City do in the Champions League, and if they can, turn around the, the title race, right? We'll jump now to the real <laughs> disaster of the big clubs at the minute. Liverpool uh, dropped a, a stinker at Molyneux, 3-0 against a team that had only scored 12 goals all season. I think they only scored Six home goals before the weekend as well. And, you know, Liverpool, they were own worst enemies, ultimately for all the goals, really. All the goals were bad ones to concede from their perspective. But Wolves, Wolves won't care. You know, they, they'll probably say they earned their goals. But Jürgen Klopp, after the game, salty as ever. There's so many talking points to begin with. Um, I suppose the place to start is, is just the performance overall. We all know there's issues with that Liverpool team. But what did you make of that? Were you, I mean, I wasn't surprised that Liverpool were 2 0 down after 12 minutes after watching them recently. But were you surprised at the manner of that performance and the fact that we've seen this happen over and over again and Klopp clearly isn't able to get this message across to the players as to not play so poorly in these matches? 
Yeah, so cards on the table as a Wolves fan, I was very surprised to see us score two goals in 12 minutes. It felt like that takes about 12 months on this. So we'll, we'll say that first of all. And Liverpool were just dreadful. Absolutely dreadful. And prior to the game, I actually, when you look at the lineups, what was alarming to me is if I was a Liverpool supporter, it wasn't alarming for me, obviously, but Wolves, Wolves midfield just looks better. And it's not even like I thought, you know, Liverpool need to have enough day. I just, I looked at the midfield three that Wolves had of Neves, Nunes and Lamina. And I just thought that was a better midfield than what Liverpool had, which is, it's just amazing that that Klopp has allowed the squad to, to go so stale so quickly. Because it just, you know, they look like a team that are tenth in the Premier League. They don't look like a, a good side that are in a bad run of form. They look like a distinctly average side who are easy to get at in a number of ways. I think the midfield's placid. I think the back four without Van Dijk and, you know, they're missing Van Dijk and Canate. So that's the big sort of asterisk that you have to put on it because, you know, they're two, two really good footballers. But I mean, that back four looked dreadful. Trent, Wolves got behind Trent every single time they wanted to. And um, Gapo and Nunes, to me, both look like they need... They're both struggling, in my opinion. I thought Gapo, Gapo looked really, really, really poor. And um, Nunes, for me, is a little bit Harland in, in the fact that he can just cause a bit of chaos. You know, he nearly scored himself. It's a good save from Saul when the game was still at 2-0. Salah's form has dropped off a cliff as well. It's just all happened at the same time. And I think, you know, there's been injuries. But for me... Liverpool, when Liverpool were Liverpool, it was that high intensity, high press from midfield. You had the ball, there was three players snapping at your heels and there was just like a sheer force of will. And that came from the centre of midfield. And now they're just easily overrun by, you know, I'd, I'd say like 60% of the teams in the Premier League, 65, 70% of the teams will feel like they look at their midfields and, and think that that's an area that they can exploit. And if a team like Wolves who have been in the relegation zone who haven't been, who have been pretty poor, pretty desperate for for large portions of the season, can sensibly say that we have a better midfield, and that is an area of the game that Wolves should win. Then that's that's alarming for Liverpool, and you know Klopp can be as salty as he wants after after the game, but this that's the state of the the state of play at Liverpool is that they have one of the poorest midfields in the Premier League, and it's showing every single week. Do you think Klopp? Are we heading towards the end of the Jurgen Klopp reign? I mean, it seems. I don't think that Liverpool fans will turn against him. I think. I think I watched an interview with Jamie Carragher the other week, and he said that even a relegation in Liverpool fans would probably still love Jurgen Klopp. But I don't know. You watch the demeanor of a manager, and you you watch the way they go on after a game, and you watch the mannerisms on the touchline. Which I saw the clip of him after I think that the first goal, or might be the the second goal that Wolves scored. But there's a clip of him looking despondent on the touchline. You look at the rebuilding job that needs to be done at Liverpool and you just wonder, does he have it in him to rebuild this Liverpool team? And do Liverpool trust, after seeing how the team's played this season, that he's the right man to completely change the team? And I suppose the other factor to all this is, is Liverpool's up for sale and is that having an impact on what's happening? I mean, normally managers say that things like that don't affect them because they're on the training pitch. But it just seems odd to me that Liverpool have looked as bad as they have since Roy Hodgson was manager in the last few months. You know, that that's the levels we're at right now. And 
They're miles away from Champions League places. They're quite far away from even Europa Conference League places. It just seems like a bit of a tyre fire at the minute. And I just don't know if Jurgen Klopp has it in him to, to see through this project and whether or not Liverpool trust him to do that at the minute. Yeah, I think that's something that he's going to have to answer himself because this isn't a Jude Bellingham signing away from Liverpool competing for the title again. Um, and, you know, you question whether Bellingham would go to Liverpool if, if there's no Champions League. I, I doubt that personally. I don't think he would drop down to to go in to play in the Conference League or, you know, no European football at all. But I, this, is, this isn't a one-signing-fixes-all type problem that Liverpool have got at the minute. I think there's wholesale changes. I think that team had gone stale and I think Klopp recognised that in the fact he let Mane go. I think what he didn't realise was maybe Mane was a little bit more influential than than people even even realised. And Salah's not the same player without without Mane and so much was built around Salah and Mane and, and Firmino when, when, when Firmino was still at his peak. And, but you know, it, it's, it's all gone very stale. This is sort of like it feels like the end of the end of a cycle for a lot of the players. I mean, you look at you look at that starting eleven that that played at Molyneux and there's maybe three players, four players that you would say you'd want them sticking around for the long run. And Klopp has to make a decision because this feels like it might be a couple of seasons again for Liverpool to rebuild and to go young and whether they're willing to do what Arsenal did and almost take a season off and just revolutionise the squad because that's what Arsenal had to do with that in 2021 when they finished uh, 7th and now they got rid of a lot of the big contracts. They bought younger players through. They started giving players a chance. They almost said to Arteta, there's no threat of the sack this season. You just try and work out what you want to do for the future and and start building towards that because this isn't it at, at Liverpool because they're just recycling the same players that are causing the same problems every week. And it, you know, it doesn't take a genius to to know where Liverpool need to improve. And that's in the spine of the team, throughout the spine of the team. And because just the, the drop-off in quality, I mean, Joe Gomez has been there for a long time. He's not a player that should be ever starting for a side that are competing for the title. I think he's a good Premier League defender. I don't think he's at the level needed to step in when when Van Dijk or Canate get injured, I think Matip's time has been and gone. You look at Fabinho, Fabinho has just, I don't know what's happened to Fabinho in the last sort of four or five months. He's gone from one of the best players in the Premier League to almost a liability every week. Can't keep the ball, can't win it back. He looks slow, he looks ponderous when he gets possession. Henderson doesn't start games for them. You know, they were 2-0 two, two down and brought Henderson on. And you're thinking... It's not the type of sub where you go in. Wolves are going to be fearing this now. Now they've bought Jordan Henderson on because it was just a sort of like he's just feels like he's plugging gaps. And Liverpool are going nowhere quickly, and they don't. I think the big difference between this and when Liverpool were struggling a couple of seasons ago is you always felt like that team was capable of going on a run where they run, you know, ten, twelve games in a row and, and got themselves back into top four contention. I just don't see that with this team at all. I don't see a scenario where they suddenly go on a long run. I'd be, I'll probably be wrong now, but I just don't see that there's that team there really that are, that are capable of of dictating to teams 
think how they want to play. And I think like City, I think with this midfield issues that they've got, they need to change the way they're playing. If they want to sort of, I think they need to be direct, a bit more direct maybe to Nunes and, and get Gakpo and Salah running around him and running off in. I think Jota coming back will be big for them as well. But yeah, I think there's, there's really, really big issues at Anfield, really big issues. I thought it was interesting that they signed Cody Gakpo in January because obviously he's, well, he's not shown it yet, but he is a good player, you know, from what we've seen, particularly at the World Cup, it looked good. But that wasn't an area that I thought Liverpool needed to invest in. Like, it's £35 million that I think could have been better spent, you know. I mean, it's a player that's always linked, but I looked at Yuri Tielemans and went, would Yuri Tielemans from Leicester, who was out of contract at the end of the season, could you get him for £20 million now? And he will just add that little bit of energy. I mean, I don't think Yuri Tielemans is a player who's good enough to play sort of every week for a team like Liverpool that's going for major honours. But right now, he would be a massive upgrade on what they have because he's he ticks a lot of the categories you don't have at the minute. He's, he's reasonably energetic. He's got good leadership skills. It feels like if you put him in there, he would have a, a chance of putting Liverpool sort of in the right direction. But almost, I don't think they necessarily lose that game 3-0 at the weekend with a player like him in the team. It's the midfield. I mean, Steven Bajetic, who they've been using in central midfield, is not, for me, he's not good enough. Every time I've watched him, he's a he's a young player. He's a decent prospect. But I mean, should he be starting games in the Premier League right now? I, I don't think so. And you, know, you mentioned there Jordan Henderson. Is he finished? I think he's finished as a top-level player. I mean, I'm a Sunderland fan. I love Jordan Henderson. But at his age, I think he's 32, the amount of running that he's done in his career, he is a, he's been a box-to-box midfielder for basically 15 years in the Premier League. I don't see him being an answer to a problem. Bringing him on for the last 20 minutes, half an hour, as you said, it isn't isn't going to change the game for Liverpool. And you look at that midfield and it needed freshened up in January a little bit and then it needs serious, serious work in the summer uh, in terms of big signings. But to me, Liverpool have focused so much on their attacking options in the transfer market. I just think in the summer just gone, was the money they spent on, say, a Darwin Nunes, should that have been maybe put into that that midfield area? Because I don't think they've bought a central midfielder since Thiago. I don't know if I'm... I'm they might have maybe brought in a couple of younger ones, but certainly major players. That That's a long time ago now that they brought in Thiago. And I just think that central midfield area has just been so neglected. You talked about that before, but in January, to go for Gakpo, and I'd like to see, hear your opinion on this, to go for Gakpo over a central midfielder just seemed a bit silly to me. Yeah, um, I think the, the question you have to ask is when Jota and, and Diaz are fit, is Gakpo even guaranteed to start? And that was, and they prioritised that move over others. And I don't think, I'd, I'm not even sure whether he would start. For me, Jota would have to play when he's fit because Liverpool could bet side when he plays him. I'm a bit biased with, with Jota. Um, and, and Diaz, for me, has show, shown a lot more than, than Gakpo has as well. I'd argue would Nunes necessarily start and that's £120 million worth of play that you're talking about there that could have been invested in midfield. I mean, even, and this is, I'm not saying he would have necessarily helped or improved, but, you know, Arsenal went and, and got Jorginho for £12 million just to add something else to their midfield, another option. And, you know, Liverpool just were seemingly content with what they've got. And I don't understand how Klopp could have looked at that midfield and think that that was acceptable for the second half of the season. I, the, it, he must have got a message from above that there was just that there was no money to spend because 
I just don't understand how he could think that that was acceptable for the. He knows what type of football he wants to play, so he's always talked about this like heavy metal football and and you know and when Liverpool are at their best, it's been high pressing, high intensity, pressurising opposition, and he knows that that midfield can't do that, can't deliver on that. Thiago's a brilliant player, wonderful footballer. He's not that. Naby Keita's never been that. You know, he's not lived up to the billing of what they paid for him. And it's a bit of a weird one. I think almost every other position they've recruited in has tended to go quite well. I don't think they've ever recruited that well under Klopp for midfield players when you actually look at it. Um, Fabinho was obviously a good signing, but that was a long time ago now. And there's been, when you look at the money that's been invested in other positions, as you say, I've, I think midfield's been like criminally neglected at, at Liverpool, like really badly neglected. And it's got to the stage now where it's just a desperately, desperately poor area of their team. And yeah, as I've said a couple of times, this isn't a Bellingham signing away from Liverpool suddenly being back, which I think there's sort of that impression that that was the case. I don't think that that's the case anymore. I think Liverpool need a major rebuild. And it's it's just funny how football turns because Liverpool thrashed Man United at the end of last season. And Ragnick, Ralph Ragnick said that United were, I think he said they were five years behind Liverpool and that Man United needed 10, 10 players to catch up with them. You would, you'd certainly have Casemiro in, in Liverpool's midfield without a shadow of a doubt. You'd probably have Fred in Liverpool's midfield. You'd definitely find room for Fernandes. And suddenly, like the, it doesn't take long and that's just turned straight away. And you look at Man United's squad and it looks stronger now to me. There's, given there's some areas where you'd still take Liverpool players and whatever, but now you, th- you think Liverpool are the team that need this massive rebuild now and they might be two or three years away. And that's happened in the space of, you know, 10 months. I think he said that in April, Rangnick, that they were five years behind. And in 10 months, you would say that that, that worm's just completely turned now and Liverpool are the ones that, that need like major surgery. That was the quote that Ragnick used for United that they needed major surgery and, and Liverpool now need that. Yeah, maybe Ralph Rangnick was just wrong. He was wrong a lot of the time at Man United. He was wrong on that one. He was. Um, well, thanks, Ben, for uh, for joining us today. It's been a, almost a very negative chat, actually. <laughs> very negatively a lot of teams. But Wolves won, which is your team. They look like they're, they're on the path. They're on the path to survival. The relegation, actually, is very, very interesting. We don't have time to talk about it today, but I think there's going to be at least one or two big clubs going down the season. So that'll be exciting to see come the end of the season. So, um Thanks everyone for listening and um, we'll catch you on Thursday for our normal Football Digest show. 